the reason I still stick to it is because my goal is to cash flow. I want to cash flow. Well, rental arbitrage is one of the, and I've argued about this with top investors. It's one of the best way to cash flow. If you have one apartment, you'll cash flow 1500 bucks, anywhere from 800 to 1500 bucks every month. Well, imagine you had five. Now you're at 5,000. If you add 10, now you're at 10,000 a month, free and clear cash. I mean, you can quit your job with that and hang out and live your best life, right? This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, investors, and welcome to episode 251 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Rafa Loza on the podcast. Rafa is a short-term rental investor based in California, and he's been in the short-term rental industry for the past four years and has multiple units in operation. In this episode, Rafa will talk about how you can get started with Airbnb rental arbitrage and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. He'll share some of the important aspects of the business, such as how much money you need to get started, how to pick the best locations, how to manage your business, and how to deal with rowdy guests. So if you want to know more about starting a short-term rental arbitrage business to massively boost your cash flow, then you need to listen to this episode. By the way, if you're an active real estate investor, then you need to have a solid lender on your team. And if you're looking for a hard money loan, I can help. We do hard money loans nationwide at great rates and close in 10 to 14 days. So if you're looking for a hard money loan, you can reach me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now onto the show. All right, Rafa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Hey, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. So my name is Rafa. I'm a short-term rental investor out of Southern California. I run a hospitality company, short-term rental company, Airbnb business, as some people know it, uh, called Night in Rain Properties. Um, I've been doing it for about uh, a little bit over four years, maybe four and a half. Currently, I have 24 units live that are operating, built out about 58 of them over over the past um, time that I've been doing this. And yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this, man. It's been quite a journey. Yeah. And, you know, we met a couple of weeks ago over in Los Angeles. We met at a GoBundance event and I heard you were actually on the Bigger Pockets podcast. So congratulations for that. That's uh, very exciting to be on. And I was wondering, how do you even get started with Airbnb arbitrage? Yeah. So I, I think in order for, for, for me to get into that, I would have to kind of explain what that is, right? Um, when we talk about it, because arbitrage isn't really a word that's used often out in the investor world. It's just recently gotten very popular because a lot of people have been talking about it, like on bigger pockets or like at networking events and stuff like that. But um, rental arbitrage is basically the concept is when you take a um, an apartment or a house and you lease it from an owner or an investor and you lease it long term like a regular tenant and uh, you add value to it, right? We furnish it. We make it look beautiful, we design it, and then we charge a premium on a nightly rate. So my company comes in, we rent the entire an apartment for um, a year or three years, and then we go and we furnish it and we re-rent it per night to people who are traveling on websites like Airbnb, our own direct booking website, VRBO. There's a bunch of different ways to do this. The, the I wanted to explain that because I want people to get an understanding exactly of what it is. And the easiest way to get started is by um, networking or going to apartment complexes, or meeting people who own property, who have vacancy, and just talking to them and saying, hey, uh, you know, my name's Rafa. I'm with Night and Rain Properties. I'm a short-term rental operator at this corporate housing, and we're looking to expand in this area. Um, and I'm looking for a one-bedroom apartment, which you happen to have vacant right now. And I'm trying to house um, business travelers, travel nurses. Would you be interested in uh, leasing this place out to me so I can use it for my business, right? Something along those lines, of course, is it's not pitched or scripted or anything like that. Um, but it's ha- holding a conversation and talking to the investors and the property managers and explaining to them how you're actually going to use their apartment and then holding true to your word as to what you're going to do, right? If I tell you that I'm going to be housing business travelers um, or families here for leisure or some kind of uh, medical professional, um, it's who I'm actually going to be targeting to house in your apartment, right? And um, yeah, I mean, that's honestly the best way to do it. Go out and just start making phone calls and start talking to people and asking and sign a lease and furnish it and get going. So what was like your actual introduction to it? Like, why did you decide to go into this business? So um, about five years ago, um, I wanted to get into real estate investing. I was transitioning. I used to have a, an old business. It was a collections uh, business. 
and I got out of it and I started in the meantime, I jumped into a job and I was working at a casino and I, you know, I was like, Hey, I need to invest in something. I need to find a way to make extra cash. I don't want to be in, in my job forever. I need to find a way to, to, to kind of figure out how I'm going to survive and how I'm going to be able to set myself up for the future. It was always for me to always look out for the future. Right. And so I, I was getting into real estate investing and I quickly realized that unless you're are really familiar with the world of real estate investing, it's very hard to go out and start cash flowing from any type of property, right? Especially here in California. It, it, at the time I was looking at a, it was like a three, two or something like that four three. I don't remember what it was, but it was a single family residency. And I was going to end up, I had about $20,000 at that time. You know, don't quote me on the numbers. It was like 15, 20,000 bucks. I don't remember. I'm like, Hey, if I buy this house, it was going to be turnkey on market, right? I had no idea about the burst strategy or like fix and flips or none of that stuff, wholesaling, nothing. Um, and so I, I ran numbers on a property and I'm like, if I buy this house right now, I'm going to be cash flowing at like 200 bucks or maybe even ending negative based on closing costs and everything. And 20,000 is not really even enough to cover the down payment of a house unless I do it for me living in it, right? 3.5 down type of situation. And so I, I was like, this isn't going to work. Well, at the time, as I was looking for that, uh, my old business partner was like, Hey, there's this guy who's driving around this Ferrari out in LA. He's got like, 10 apartments. I'm like, how's he doing that? And she's like, he's got like 10 apartments on Airbnb in one building. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, you can do that? And and so I looked into it and I'm like, I know what Airbnb is. I've stayed in them before, right? And I started doing research, came across uh, this guy who's mentoring people on on how to, to, to start like a short-term rental business, how to cash flow handsomely. And I'm like, what's short-term rentals? And then I put two and two together. It's the same thing. Short-term rental is the strategy. Airbnb is the marketing platform, right? So we're not running an Airbnb business. We're running a short-term rental business right? Because I can go and get bookings outside of Airbnb, right? I don't go to a, to a business and go, hey, I have an Airbnb for you to rent. I go, hey, I have an apartment for rent for you, right? A corporate house type of situation. And so anyway, I, without getting sidetracked there, um, I was like, okay, maybe I should give this a shot. And I signed up to this dude's mentorship program. It was a series of videos that I saw and it kind of explained the business as a whole as a professional business, right? Not like as a side gig, which, I, which is what I was trying to do. And um, they were great. I was all hyped up put it on the back burner, went back to work. Um, at that point, I was getting transitioned to night shifts. So I was working during the night, graveyard, and um, I would wake up and, you know, sleep all day. So it took about six months from that point on that I did nothing. But my business partner was still making phone calls at the time because we said, hey, we got to do this. Like, let's, let's make some money. And so we're making phone calls and she goes, hey, I got this uh, disappointment, right? Um, and we get denied. I show up and she was like, she would make the phone calls, the initial like, hey, we're going to come out. I would show up and I do the, the pitch and then I would get denied. And we went like that a lot of times. It was like constant going and going and going. Right? It was, I think I'll talk about this often. It was like, I got like 40 no's before I got my first yes. Right. And um, I get to the point where the same thing. I show up and this building was under construction. The entire building it was 122 units or something like that, 112 and the manager was like, oh, yeah, I love that idea. We have a lot of vacancies. It would be great for you to take one under your corporation. Um, it was like that simple. And I was like, oh, cool, sweet. And I come home and I'm like, hey, I, I call her and I was like, hey, I got I got this lease signed. It's a two bedroom apartment. It's it's go time. And um, that was it, man. We we took it. It was a two bedroom apartment. We started furnishing. We had no idea what we were doing. Right now I get designers to do everything. Um, we kind of did it ourselves and then we brought a designer in to kind of do the finishing touches because it, it, we wanted it again to be professional and beautiful and like stand out. Back in the day, Airbnb was like, you can put in a bed and a frame and a TV and it would rent. Now you need to stand out. You need to provide some kind of service that really stands out uh, uh, above the rest. And so that's what we did. She came in and she she did some finishing touches, this designer, and we went live I think it was middle of November, middle of December. I don't remember the exact months, but two weeks in on a two bedroom apartment on, and we just put it on Airbnb. Um, I had covered the rent and then some the next month I made like a $6,000 profit and I was sold. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I, I can easily quit my job if I open a bunch of these. And when I opened the second one, fast forward to February, the complex really liked how we were operating. Remember I told you, you got to hold true to your word to what you're doing. Even though you're going to be on Airbnb, you can still vet your guests. You can still bring the right type of customer. You can still allow who comes and goes from your place the way you want to do it. If everything is done correctly, right? From the pricing strategy all the way to the way your listing is set up to the way your listing is to the way your your apartment or house is furnished. All of that comes into play. And so they really liked what we were doing. And, and the manager was like, hey, we got a one bedroom and a two bedroom coming up that are they were remodeling as they went. Do you want them? And I'm like, yeah, Absolutely. 
no idea what I was doing at that point. Um, had no money to open them, right? My first unit, that two bedroom I told you guys about, at that point, I had already spent a lot of the cash that I had. So I think I had about $10,000 in cash. And I went to my brother and I was like, hey, dude, can I borrow your credit card so we can get this unit open? And he's like, yeah. And um, it was like 15000 bucks on the credit card. And that's what it took. It took a credit card and some cash. And I used the cash for the rent and the deposit for the first month's rent. And uh, I actually had to pay two months rent deposit because I was new into the building. When she offered me the second two units, as I signed the leases on them, I said, you know what? I'm going in all in on this. And I, I gave my 30-day notice at work. Fast forward nine months, I had, I think it was 14 units live, two different buildings. And it just took off from there. Just took off from there. Yeah. So I guess the key takeaway is maybe find a landlord or maybe a management company that has a lot of properties. So that way they can give you more. It's not just like you're doing all this work for just one unit. This one company gave you a lot of different units to do uh, and open your business with. Yeah. Well, you know, something that you'll find when you're doing this is that if you find the right location or the right investor, and by investor, I mean, whoever owns a lot of property, uh, the right owner, and you operate correctly, everybody here will find that they just start handing them to you. I no longer actively look for locations. I, it's literally, hey, I got this apartment. Do you want it? Or, hey, I just bought this house. It's getting remodeled. Do you want it? And that comes from doing what you're you say you're going to do and having a good relationship. That's it. And then what do you budget for every property that you open up? Like in terms of like how much cash you need up front? In all honesty, Sean, it's kind of a loaded question. It's not as simple as I can tell you, hey, I, I budget eight grand or I budget 10 grand, right? It really depends on the way the, the, the house looks on the, on, in the inside, the, the remodel style, right? The style of if it's brand new cabinets, it's been like, you know, nicely remodeled inside. It's not like a, an old dingy apartment. I'm probably going to spend a little bit more money to make the actual place stand out. I want to put good decor, good furniture, because I want to attract a specific customer that pays me a higher rate, right? Um, for anybody who's listening who says, hey, I want to get started and I don't know about like how to measure this stuff. Um, on a one bedroom apartment, you can do it, uh, just the furnishing costs and electronics anywhere from five to $8,000 very easily. Um, including rent and deposit anywhere from eight to $10,000 on a one bedroom. Um, I've done one as little as five grand altogether. I spent time looking for things on offer up here and there, saving furniture, um, buying things on a budget, being very budgety, but I always put at least 500 to 1,500 just for decor for the entire place, because that's, what's going to make the place feel at home, right? Again, you don't want bare walls. You want accent walls. You want a lot of plants. Um, you want, nice little touches, right? Little decor pieces here and there. So I always set a little bit of money aside for that. But um, on a three bedroom house, I've done as high as um, $21,000 and as little as about $8,000. And are you, where are you getting your furniture? Is it like Ikea style or Amazon, or are you going to like, you know, higher end type of places? Yeah. So we get it from everywhere. Um, during when COVID hit, it got, we had to get creative. Even now I'm backed up on a bunch of couches. Um, I actually canceled. I put an order of like seven couches in and I canceled them because they were delayed. They just kept pushing them back. So Ikea works, Wayfair works, West Elm works. I mean, it goes from different tiers, right? Um, Target. I think we've even bought like specific things from Walmart, like very, we stay away from like the cheaper furniture because again, we're targeting a very different customer, right? Um, if you furnish your place cheaply, you're going to attract the cheaper customer, the budget customer, the person who doesn't care to pay too much money. But if you design your place that looks really expensive, beautiful, and like higher end, then you're going to attract the customer who's willing to pay a little bit more money. So we tend to focus on places like West Elm, Wayfair, um, Ikea, in between there. But to be honest, I, I mean, I, I've bought stuff on offer up. Like I constantly, I'm looking like I'll buy a credenza for like 400 bucks that I know costs like 1200 bucks. Um, I'll buy dining tables for like 300 bucks that I know are like 1500 bucks, like the big wooden rustic tables. Right. Um, and then whatever I, I hire a designer now. So a designer does all of my locations and whatever she finds, I give her a budget. So I go, Hey, you have $8,000 for this place, do your thing. And she goes out and she buys whatever we need $8,000 worth. And if she comes across to a point where we go, Hey, I might need a little bit of wiggle room. Cause I found this really cool piece that's going to stand out here. She sends it to me and I approve it. Then we can raise the budget or I, you know, it just depends. But she goes out and does her thing. She finds furniture, wherever home goods, all that. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I met you a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that we were setting up our place for Airbnb. So a few weeks later, now that place is actually rented out full time to some Tesla interns. It's very exciting. We spent a lot of time and effort to like decorate. And it was a big pain in the butt. You know, just like you said, like I don't have an eye for design. My fiance has a better eye, but it was still 
a lot of work to get that set up. Uh, so it's good that you have like that piece outsourced now to someone else who can do it for you. Yeah. And I was wondering why Airbnb arbitrage versus like, let's say buying the properties and operating it that way. I love the question, dude. Yes. Um, I get that a lot, right? Uh, listen, the ultimate goal is to purchase. Have, like the ultimate goal is always real estate to hold, right? Buy and hold real estate. I don't want to fix and flip. I don't want to keep renting apartments out, but it goes down to where you're at in your point in time in life and what you're doing with, with where you're at, right? For example, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't know about fix and flipping. I didn't know about hard money lenders. I didn't know about uh, the burst strategy where you can you know, go into a good deal. And if it, you, the numbers work out, you can pull your money back out and have a house for free type of situation, right? I didn't know about any of that. At the time, all I wanted to do was make some extra cash. Now that I know all about it, the reason I still stick to it is because my goal is to cash flow. I want to cash flow. Well, rental arbitrage is one of the, and I've argued about this with top investors. It's one of the best way to cash flow. If you have one apartment, you'll cash flow 1500 bucks, anywhere from 800 to 1500 bucks every month. Well, imagine you had five. Now you're at 5,000, right? Uh, 7,500 a month. If you add 10, now you're at 10,000 a month, free and clear cash. I mean, you can quit your job with that and hang out and live your best life, right? So it, it depends as to where you're at in life. My thing is, because when I started, I had no money. I had very little money. Arbitrage is a very, very inexpensive way to get started in investing, right? Anybody listening to this can go, I have $10,000. What do I do? Well, go and rent one bedroom apartment, furnish it nicely within that $10,000 budget, operate it correctly, get educated to do this the right way. And I can guarantee you that you'll have those $10,000 back in your pocket within eight to 10 months. Eight to 10 months is all it takes to have that money back, right? Um, in the right market, of course, in the right location and managed correctly. That's the most important part, managed correctly. And so um, that's why it's such a good, important tool because when when you're, uh, not tool, but strategy, because if your goal in life is to just cash flow because you love your job and you want to make side money to, you know, pay for your vacation every couple months or whatever the case may be, arbitrage is great, right? If you want to purchase something, but you can't afford to purchase it, arbitrage is great. You open 10 units. You build enough cash flow, you take that to the down payment. Now you have something, right? Um, and that's that's why I've been sticking with it. It's why I do it. It's why I've been doing it. Um, it. It works great, but I also know that it's just a strategy and it's not a long term play. I'm at the mercy of the owners, the property managers. So if they decide to tell me that it's over, my lease ends, and they don't want to renew me, that's it. I have to move on. But typically, in a year, worst case scenario, I made my money back and then some right? If I'm in the building for three years, I've made more than, than enough of my original money. If I was smart and saved money and treated it like a business and invested it, then it's not going to matter because in three years, if I open 10 units, they're all paid off and I have enough money to start actually investing in, in real property. Hopefully that answers it. Absolutely. I guess my flip end, what are some of the downsides you've seen of doing the Airbnb arbitrage method versus like a, a traditional long-term rental? Um, well, the downsides is that, and I don't know if I would call this a downside, but you're running a business. A long-term rental is a passive investment. So you're putting one person into your location and you don't have to worry about it for a year. With uh, rental arbitrage, it's it's property management on steroids. You're going through in one year, instead of one tenant all year, you're going through, I don't know, 35 different reservations maybe in a year. I mean, more than that. I, I go through about seven on average. So seven times 12, whatever that is in one year, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second part is that, I mean, if we're talking strictly arbitrage and you don't own the property, the downside is that you are at the mercy of your lease. If, if the lease is structured correctly, right? When the lease ends and the, and the owner doesn't want to renew you um, for whatever reason, maybe they want to give it, give it a shot themselves, or maybe um, they just don't want to deal with all the, all the moving parts that have to go into it, or you have them too involved, whatever the case may be they might ask you, hey, it's time to go, right? We, we now have a great family who wants to stay here. It's time to go. And so that's the downside. In an apartment complex, the downside is that other operators can jump into your apartment complex, um, cause problems, and you get kicked out. Or maybe one of your guests throws a party and you don't catch it because mistakes do happen. I've had it happen um, where a guest shows up and causes problems for the neighbors. The neighbors get upset and they go and complain to the manager. If that happens... And the manager says, hey, we can't have you here. Then it's time to go, right? Or if somebody does this and doesn't structure their lease properly 
and they get caught by the manager or the owner, you got to go, right? And so that's the downside. And and again, it, it, going back to the first point, it's a business that a lot of people might look at it as a downside. I don't because I treat it as a business, but it's a lot of moving parts that have to be managed properly in order for it to work. And you also mentioned that this is profitable if it's managed correctly. Uh, what did you mean by that? And how are people mismanaging these kind of uh, Airbnbs? Great question, dude. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I love that you asked it. Um, so the professional operator and the guy that does this as a side gig, two different things, right? The guy that does this as a side gig might be somebody who just owns a property or maybe someone who just wants to make a little cash on the side. And then they go and let's let's just give you the arbitrage example, right? They just go to an apartment complex and um, for some odd reason, they end up structuring the deal correctly to where they have the lease in place. They're allowed to, they have permission from the um, apartment manager and they're allowed to operate correctly. What will happen is they're not equipped to handle everything that goes through through this business, right? Because they're not giving it their full attention. They're not treating it like a professional operator, an actual business. And so they might be pricing incorrectly. Maybe they think their pricing is just way too low. That's the biggest thing I see from anybody. They're using, and I, I hate to throw shade on this because it's it's a tool to help people get started, but like they'll use like the Airbnb um, dynamic pricing. Airbnb has their own like dynamic pricing. And it's the worst thing that any, I hope whoever listens to this, that's running in a short-term rental Airbnb business listens to me. The Airbnb dynamic pricing is terrible. You're not going to, you might make money, but you're not going to make what you really should be making. And so, but if it's someone new that doesn't know any better, they might just start doing that, right? And now they've rented their entire place at $2,000 a month, plus their operating expenses and everything. We're looking at like, let's just say $2,600 a month. And then they rent out their place for $2,900 a month. They're happy because they made $300, right? As opposed to a professional operator who can come in, take that same amount at $2,600 and do $5,500 a month, right? When managed correctly and priced correctly and furnished correctly, and you have your systems in place and your security procedures in place, all of this ties together to the way it's been managed. You're vetting the right guests. You're pricing correctly. You have the team in place to clean it properly. You know how to stop loud noises. You know how to stop a party from happening. All of that comes into play to where you will have a very profitable business as opposed to someone who doesn't really care because they made 300 bucks every month. Right, three hundred times ten is three thousand. You're not going to make your ten grand back. Makes sense. And you also said that you are maybe doing seven turns per year, which you know that means that you're renting these for over a month, typically, right? like thirty day plus rentals. No, I'm doing seventy turns per year. Oh, seventy turns per year. I'm doing something like seven per month. Yeah, per month. I apologize wow. if I said yeah, I meant per month. Okay, got it. So I guess you do come across those situations where you have people who are here. I guess they're going to LA for maybe hanging out at Disneyland or whatever. And yeah, maybe you throw fat parties, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a story of when that happened and what did you do to stop it? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, but I've only actually really had one party in the last four years that I've been doing this. And that, well, correction, I've had one party that had to go to the extreme to where I had to kick people out. I have parties, people have quote unquote parties where, um, you know, they have a gathering. So you let's, let's, let's break down what parties really mean, right? If it's a group of 10 who show up to your three-bedroom house because you allow 10 people in your three-bedroom house and they're having a party, that's not really a party. They're just there on vacation enjoying themselves, right? Now, if the noise gets out of out of hand, we can stop the noise. We can message them and go, hey, because we have noise decibel monitors in the apartments and any, any professional operator should have that, right? That should be part of your security procedures. And if the noise gets really out of hand to where it's going to bother the neighbors, it's a simple message. Hey, guys, can you just please keep it down? Right. And that's it. But they're not having a party. They're just on vacation enjoying themselves. That's a big difference. Right. It's a huge misconception as to if it's 10 people who walk in the door and then you check your your camera footage. And now you see another five come in. And then 20 minutes later, another five come in. They just start trickling in little by little. Right. That's a party. That's where you have to go. Hey, stop it. Right. And you have to be able to handle it correctly. So the one story that happened to me was uh, hopefully that explains the difference here in parties where I'm getting at. But um, the one time that it happened it, and I treat everything different, for example, if if it's in a, a two bedroom apartment in an apartment complex where I know I have neighbors on the sides and on top of me, then even the, if, if, if I allow eight people on a two bedroom apartment and they get really noisy, then I classify that as a party and they have to stop because I have people literally on the wall. Right. But a house where there's the houses are separated and again, 
leave it to your discretion. But anyway, so this was a two-bedroom apartment. Um, they booked for seven people, I believe it was, maybe eight, I don't remember. And it was Halloween. Halloween two years ago, actually. And normally we don't allow one night bookings for any holiday. Like actually not normally, we never do. But at the time I was on booking.com and um, I was getting to know booking.com and it was one of those things where like I wasn't familiar with it yet. Well, somebody booked last minute for Halloween and um, I was nowhere near the apartment, Uh, like nowhere near the apartment. My procedures weren't as, as on point as they are now. And so uh, the noise started getting, the, the apartment started getting really noisy around, I want to say 7 p.m. Um, and then I checked the doorbell camera and I start seeing people walking in and bringing decorations. And, you know, two people are walking in with, with beers on each side of their, each hand's like a 12 pack of beer, something like that. And I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen. It's Halloween, right? And I'm thinking, okay, but if it's just them, no big deal. Maybe they're just trying to throw like a little get together again. Definition of a party. Um, and then I see them block the camera and that's when I'm like, okay, now we know that they're going to have a party. And then literally like 9 PM, the noise just starts getting out of hand. And so I message them. First thing I do is I send a message saying, Hey guys, um, you know, we're getting noise complaints from the neighbors. Can you guys please keep it down? Um, no response. So then I give them about 15 minutes. I send my second message and it's something like, Hey, the neighbors are complaining and our noise monitoring software is detecting very high noise levels. Um, we need you to stop it immediately or it might end up with a a cancellation on your reservation. And so no response. Um, Then I actually send a text message. So I avoid direct communication at all costs. I do everything through the messaging platforms of wherever I'm doing because I want everything recorded. But before I have to go to the extreme of me showing up or actually setting off my alarm or something like that, I send a text message and I go, hey, listen, we've been trying to get a hold of you for the past hour. The noise is very out of hand. We need you guys to stop immediately or we're going to cancel your reservation um, and we will set off the alarm and the authorities will show up to escort you out. And that's it, right? And then if they respond with, oh, God, I'm so sorry, and you see people run out of the door or whatever, then cool. No harm, no foul. Um, but if they don't respond or they go, nah, everybody's leaving, but nobody leaves and everything continues the same, I literally, so I have a security system in all of my units, whether it's um, it's just a siren. So, and uh, it, we can go into that at a different topic or a different time, Sean, because it's a, it's a big, big system that I have set up, right? And I, it, to go into it would probably take up this entire hour. But long story short, I set off the alarm. And um, it's literally a big siren. It's like, beep, 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 right? Super loud. And so imagine someone's having a party. This thing just disrupts the party. And they're like panicking. That's when you start getting the flood of messages. Hey, man, the alarm's going off. What are we doing? It's like, hey, I've been trying to get a hold of you for the past two hours. Well, um, they're like, hey, we're all leaving. I apologize. Um, okay, I said, cool. So I turn off the alarm. Um, and I have to turn it off fast because this one actually has an actual security system. So the cops would actually show up. So um, I turned it off. And um, they leave. Everything was good. But then around 1130, it looks like they came back from the bar and they all start trickling back in. And so I message them and I go, hey, bud, I go, we don't have we don't allow parties. This is it. Final warning. Reservation is going to be canceled. He goes, no, no, they're just here to, to pick up their stuff. And I'm like, "Okay, well, they have five minutes to exit the apartment and they don't leave. And that's when I actually so I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm over this. Um, I set off the alarm one more time. The cops actually showed up. They knock on the door. Hey, and, um, you know, I, I can communicate with the security system. So they go, I go, hey, it's a false alarm. Obviously, I don't want them to think that they're being broken into. Um, but the cops showed up and they're like, oh, no, we rented the place. And I, and I ended up driving out there. So I show up at the same time and I go, hey, guys, listen, this was a rental. Your reservation has been canceled. You're now actually trespassing. You guys got to get out. And they got all upset. Uh, this was after the cops left. They got all upset. They left, but they left a bunch of their personal belongings inside the house. So the reservation, I actually canceled the reservation. Um, I asked them all to leave. They went out drinking. They didn't care. And then they come back like at two in the morning trying to get back in to get their stuff out. At that point, I'm gone, right? I drove back to where I don't even remember where I was at. I think I was at a Halloween party too. I don't remember, to be honest. And they're, they're messaging me like at two in the morning. I'm, I'm knocked out. Like I'm asleep at that point. Next morning, I'm getting all these threatening messages. We're going to sue you. You stole our stuff. And I'm like, guys, guys, I, I the reservation got canceled. You like, I was there when you guys all left. Why did you guys leave your stuff in the apartment? So um, long story short, the next day they came back at 11 when my cleaning team was there. We put their stuff outside the door. They picked it up. Apartment got turned, and that was the end. That was literally the worst, the worst party experience I've ever had. It's funny because when we were turning our Airbnb, this, the start date was November 1st, right? The day before that was Halloween, and our cleaner had to kind of go back and forth between like um, this other party that was had the exact same problem, right? They cover the cameras, they're being super loud and they had to physically go there and tell them, hey, you guys got to get out. 
when you cancel a, a booking like that, there's no return on their, there's no refund, right? Like they've, they violated the terms, right? So you keep their money and they kicked out. Yeah, no, that's a great question, dude. It depends. Um, it's very different based on the platform that they're booking from. For example, if they book directly through me, there's no refund. You violated the, the rental agreement, which is the same agreement that you would have to do on Airbnb or VRB or whatever. You violated the agreement and you have to exit the premises and you get no refund for anything. That's it. That's the end. They might get upset. Well, you know, do what you got to do, but I have it signed. Um, you signed it when you checked in. If it's through Airbnb, it used to be where they wouldn't get a refund, but it really goes down to the rep now. So it's it, it's kind of a flaw for on Airbnb side because you get screwed over by the fact that they had a party. You upset the neighbors. They might have trashed your place and then they refund whatever unused days were left over. Oh, no way. So after that day, everything gets back to them. And you're like, dude, now you're just leaving me hanging. That's a huge flaw on Airbnb side. I wish they would change it. Um, I've had it where a rep though. So it, it kind of goes down to the reps. I don't know. But I had it where a rep came down one time where I actually, I, I did ask somebody to leave the following day because they were just being too noisy. Too, I gave them two chances. So this wasn't a party. They were just being very noisy. Um, the first night I said, hey, guys, if this happens again, I'm going to ask you to leave. The second night, it happened again. They were just being extremely noisy. Um, so I asked them to leave the following day. They booked for, I think, like 14 days. Airbnb actually backed me up on that one. They gave me 50% of the remaining nights, kind of like the cancellation policy. But it's the only time it's ever happened. Anytime somebody cancels from that, you have to refund whatever days they don't stay. It's, it's, it's strange. Booking.com. Um, I don't know about that one, to be honest. And VRBO is, is also, I believe that one you have to give back everything also. Yeah. I believe you have to give everything back when they don't stay there going forward, but it's never happened on VRBO. It's only happened with, with Airbnb. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the biggest fears, right? You rent your place out on a short-term basis. So it's not like a 12 month lease and they could just go in there and trash your place. You know, this is my home, right? I'm letting someone live in my home. Um, at the time, also, like these people who booked our place, they're these younger like Tesla interns who didn't have like a really big history on Airbnb. So we're thinking like, okay, they're going to be booking here for like 50 days. That's great. It's a lot of income for us. But what if they just come for one night and party and they bounce, right? Then do I have to return all 50 days? Apparently you're saying I do. That's good to know in the future. So here's the thing though. That's actually a great point. I never, I've never thought of it that way. But usually, when somebody books for fifty days and they put that kind of money up front, it's not going to happen. People, uh, people who have malintent to go out and party aren't going to pay you a month's, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars with the money up front to throw a rager for one night and then get their money back. Most people don't know that. And if that's the case, it's very different when it's so. Going back to the Airbnb part, it's very different when it's long-term reservations. If it gets canceled for any specific reason, it's different. Mm. It's different. So they don't get none of that money back. Um, again, look, I, I, don't, I, I don't quote me on the, on the actual terms of service. It's just happened to me where I had to give the money back on the remaining of the days. But it's also happened where they didn't give me back, where I didn't have to give everything back, right? So it's been from both. But that's a good point. I've never thought about it that way. But it's never happened, man. I, I, every time somebody books long term, it's it, they hold true to their word, and and it's you know they might have a party in between because now they kind of feel like they own the house and they have the right to it. But you treat it like any other reservation. You stop it right away, and that's it. Makes sense. And is there anything that the platforms kind of do to help you in case something happens to the property? Like, does Airbnb or VRBO have I don't know some some way to guarantee that your property is not going to get super trashed? Um, or do you just have like insurance for that or how does that work? Yeah. So nobody guarantees anything, right? Um, they, they're not, they don't Airbnb or VRBO. They don't go, Hey, here's 20 grand in case something happens. Like, no, you put your deposit in place up to whatever amount you want. The guest pays that deposit. If issues happen, you cover it up to that deposit. But the, the real harm is if somebody really trashes your place, then you have to file a claim. And again, you're at the mercy of someone else's insurance, right? You're at the mercy of Airbnb. You're at the mercy of VRBO. Uh, VRBO is not as good as Airbnb in terms of the insurance replacement stuff. Airbnb is terrible at it, but it's still better than most platforms. And so if someone comes in and breaks your couch, Airbnb is not going to pay you for a brand new couch. You'd have to file an actual claim because of their host guarantee. It's just a long process. And if you get lucky, they might cover the whole thing. If you don't, they'll cover what they think the thing is worth, right? For example, I just had somebody steal some key fobs and it really upset me because I had to pay $250 to re replace these key fobs. And 
I sent the invoice and the receipts for the replacement, and they go, the Airbnb rep literally says, hey, well, the market average for key fobs in your area is $133. So that's what we're going to pay you. And I'm like, what? You have the receipt in hand. You tell me that if somebody broke a TV right now and I go to Best Buy and I buy a brand new TV for 400 bucks and you research it and it says that the average is 300, you're only going to pay me 300. It made absolutely no sense to me. And, uh, you know, there's no arguing with them. Once they close the case, the case is, cl- the case is closed. And um, that's the downside of it. So I, I have my own insurance on everything, regardless, um, for major damages. Sean, let's talk about this for a second. Let's, let's, let's explain what, what I mean, because people get upset when, like, somebody puts a hot pot of, of coffee on their dining table and it burns a ring, right? Or a hot cup of coffee and they spill coffee and it stains their furniture. That's part of the business, Okay, that's not intentional damage. That's not um, something that you're going to go and file a claim for. It happens, right? People are coming and going. Damages will happen to your furniture. But if there's a a table when you come in and maybe there's a couple scratches on the table and you're upset and you're trying to charge the guests for a brand new table, like, come on, you know, that's not the business that we're in. But if you walk in and somebody macheted the table or like they were jumping on it and they broke it in half, that's intentional damage. You charge for that. Then you have to be compensated for the entire table. Right. Same thing with like if somebody threw the remote of the TV and broke it. Right. Intentional damage. But if the TV, I don't know, maybe they were messing with it and it falls. Unintentional damage. Right. Um, If the light lamp breaks, unintentional damage, unless they grabbed it and threw it across the room or something. So I want to clear that up because I have insurance to cover unintentional major damage. So if something were to happen where like um, my couch got broken because all the kids were jumping up and down and they bent it in half and now it doesn't work. That's kind of intentional, but at the same time, I can't really go after the guests for it, right? Because it's it could also go, be brought down to wear and tear. So, and an insurance company is not going to cover it for you, cover it for you, right? But if a, if a guest comes in and they burn the couch or the, the they leave the stove on and the house lights up in flames, right? Who's going? You're liable for that. You have to be able to cover that. So, therefore, I have insurance for that, right? My insurance covers that, and it covers the building. That's the beauty of why landlords like to work with me, also because. There's no need for double coverage. They have their own insurance, of course. But when something happens in the apartment, all my belongings in the apartment will happen, will will happen, will be covered. I'll get paid for. And then the owner will get compensated for the entire structural damage that was done. Right. So if the entire thing goes up in flames and falls down to the the ground, the entire rehab cost is going to be covered up to like 10 million or something like that. Some, Some crazy number. Airbnb has their own host guarantee protection. But, you know, you'd never want to leave anything up to anybody else to tell you what you can and can't be covered for. Um, I don't trust it. I don't trust anybody else's third-party insurance. I trust what I have. I have my own policies in place and that's what I stick to. So I know like Airbnb or like, I guess, short-term rental properties have different types of insurance, right? You you don't usually just go to like Farmers or Geico or whatever to get this kind of insurance um, because it is more short-term. Who who are you using for your insurance policies? So it's actually getting kind of popular now. Um, they, they they are now starting. I I've, I know a few people who are now offering short term rental insurance, but they only offer specifics. Right, you want to be covered for your belongings inside. You want to be covered for rental income loss, um, something like bed bugs, something where you have to cancel a months out reservation because a guest did something to the apartment. That rental income has to get covered. Um, so there's a company that I use called Proper Insurance. They're awesome. Um, I use them for all my locations, not all my locations, but I use them for most of my locations. Um, they're expensive very expensive. If you go and get like a, like a homeowner who's got regular insurance for their house and you go to proper, you're looking at seven times what you're normally paying. It's extremely expensive. Yeah. But you know, it goes down to your coverage. What do you want covered? Um, there won't need, you don't need a double coverage. Like you wouldn't need to have insurance for your home and then go insurance for short-term rentals. It covers the entire thing. That's why they're expensive. Also, there's there's different ones out there. They're again, they're getting really popular now. I don't know. I haven't looked too much into it in the last couple of months because I'm happy with what I have. It's just, to me, it's part of operating expenses. But there's a, there's several good ones out there. And then there's also insurance for things in the apartment, like small things. Like you pay, I think, like fifty dollars every reservation to them, and it covers things inside the apartment. Like if if somebody were to break a coffee cup, you can just get a new one without questions asked. Or if somebody was to break your TV, you'd get a new one, no questions asked, because you're paying you know, every reservation. I don't do that because listen, Sean, the, the amount of damage that I've gotten over the last four years is very minimal. People break my decor because it falls off the coffee table, but nobody's ever, I've never had anybody break a TV. 
I've never, and again, it goes down to, remember we were talking about the professional operator versus someone who does a side gig. That's, that's really what it comes down to. People who just put up their house and don't pay attention to it and let anybody in will probably have broken TVs and trash carpets and, you know, dog chewed up tables, things of that nature. You know, I also found that if you charge more money, then you also get a different type of clientele. And these people oh, are I love better, this. right? Like they're, they're paying more. So they feel like, okay, well, I got to treat this place better too, right? Yeah. So, man, I love that. I'm glad you brought this up. So going back to the, the way you furnish your place, the type of customer you're bringing, right? If you, if you charge a very low amount of uh, nightly rate, whatever it is, like for me, the sweet spot's like between 160 to about 290. That's my target customer. I want the customers to pay me that amount of money. If you go anything below a hundred bucks, you're going to bring in bad guests. It just, it just is, I, I, I'm sorry. Hopefully I don't offend anybody saying that, but it will because the, the, the type of people who pay you a hundred bucks is somebody who's just passing through who doesn't care about the place, right? It's cheap. You just sleep and you go out, out your way. They'll probably smoke inside. Um, they might just drink or throw something around or they just, they're not going to care about your place. But the people who are here intentionally who are willing to pay a good amount of money, something around the 160 to 290 rate, it's, it's your typical average customer who's here with family, who's here on business, who's here on vacation. It's, it's the average Joe, so to speak, right? It's what I like to spend when I travel, right? But then you have the people who are willing to pay upwards of the 300s to the thousands of dollars per night. That's an entirely different type of business model. You're now in, playing in what some might call the luxury space, right? I know I have friends who are operators who are charging close to $3,000 a night, Damn. right? But I mean, they have a butler on site, right? They get picked up at the airport. Like the type of business now you're providing is way different, right? But yes, you will never probably ever see any type of damage in those type of properties. But the reason I bring this up is because I stick, the reason I said I like to stick to about the 300 frame is because if I get somebody who pays me based on a two bedroom apartment, right? Let's, let's put context here. Two bedroom apartment, not a big luxury three bedroom house, a two bedroom apartment, and somebody comes in and pays me three, 400 bucks a night, they're going to probably be upset because I'm overcharging for a two bedroom apartment. Therefore they become quote unquote entitled. And they think that they can do what they want in the apartment because they paid you a very high premium. So if they trash the place, well, who cares? I paid you really good money, right? They won't even pick up, like they'll blow their nose, throw, throw on the, I don't know, your towel and throw it on the floor and move on because that's, it happens. That's, that's the type of customer you're bringing, Right. And so it, it, there's both sides of the spectrum here, the really budgety customer who doesn't care, but the really expensive customer who thinks they're, that they can do whatever they want because they paid you a good amount of money, right? Yep, it's a sweet spot. Yeah. And how are you doing market research in the first place to decide if this is a good location to do this you know, short-term rental model? So when I first started, it was literally just giving it a shot, trial and error. Um, I happen to be in a good market. But there's a huge misconception out there where people think you have to be in a vacation rental market or you have to be near all the Disneylands or all the theme parks. And you don't. You can do this anywhere. This is the first things I look at, okay? If there's an airport within a 30-mile radius, people are traveling to the city, right? Airports aren't put up in small cities for no reason, right? If there's a hotel within a 10-mile radius, you'll probably do fine there because hotels don't go up unless people are traveling. There's no need for it. Hotels are literally the leading travel people for this, right? Like agencies, uh, housing agencies or whatever for anybody traveling. If there's a hospital in the area, you'll probably do fine because people are traveling for the hospitals. Um, that's the first thing I look at. I don't look at things like population. I, I don't, I, that's what gives me the initial like overview of it. That's what I, if I look at that and I see, okay, cool. Because I focus on a, a very specific niche too, right? Business travelers. But aside from that, there's a bunch of tech you can do, like tech stack stuff, right? You can do like, um, there's AirDNA. AirDNA is cool. I, I like them, but I'm, I'm, I also don't like them. I take it with a grain of salt because when I look on AirDNA, whatever they tell me that I'm going to make, that's like my bottom number. That's like my lowest number that I know I'll make. And I say that because some of my one bedrooms, AirDNA says that I'm going to be, if I open up one bedroom next door, that I'm going to be making like 60 bucks a night. Some of these one bedrooms are doing $200 a night, you know? So AirDNA is great to give you a general understanding of the market. It'll give you a very good understanding. But the thing is that people need to understand is that AirDNA is not perfect. It's pulling data from things like Airbnb, VRBO. Well, let's say it pulls the comps in all of that area to give you a, let's say you're looking for a three-bedroom house and it pulls all the comps in that three-bedroom house in the area. 
and it's going to average it out. It's going to say, well, all these all these three bedroom houses did $200 a night in the past year. But it doesn't know if that one two bedroom house that it pulled did a direct booking for six months. So it drops that rate because it averages it out. You get what I'm saying? Yep. And so, um, but again, it, it's a good starting point. If, if you're happy with what AirDNA shows you, then by all means use it, right? Because you can probably make more money on top of it. MashVisor is another one. Um, I haven't used MashVisor, but a, a good friend of mine, Jesse, you know him, uh, Jesse Vasquez, he runs numbers for people. And it's like, we're really good friends. So it's like, hey, bud, I need you to run a number for me because you have to pay for these subscriptions. And so he runs numbers for me. He's awesome. Uh, thank God I have him uh, as a friend because, you know, it's always good to have good people around you. And then the easiest free. Oh, so talk about the reason I bring this up is because AirDNA and MashVisor charge you every time you want to run comps on something. So it's a paid subscription type of model, or you pay for to run numbers a specific city area, whatever the case may be. But the easiest and free way to do it is to just pull comps in your area that that will tell you what you're looking for, like on Airbnb. So if I were to do this, like if somebody's listening and go, well, I want to know if it's going to do well. All right, I'm going to tell you guys how to do it really quick. Okay, it's simple. If you're looking for a two-bedroom apartment, you're going to pull up in, in a specific city. Um, let's just say Anaheim for, for, for this example. If I'm looking for a two-bedroom apartment in Anaheim and I want to know how much I'm going to make per night, I'm going to go into Airbnb and I'm going to pull the filters and I'm going to put two-bedroom apartment. If I plan on sleeping eight people, I'm going to put eight people. um, And then I'm going to select a specific area on the map, right, from where I'm looking. Then I'm going to select dates from today to three weeks out, random dates. doesn't matter, whatever you guys want. And then I'm going to select dates from three months out, random dates, right? And I'm going to take all that data down to see how much those people are charging. And then I'm going to look at the calendar from today to 30 days out to see how booked they are. Right. And then I'm going to look at 30 days out to 60 days out to see how booked they are. And I'm going to pull all that data. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to take at least I'm going to pull at least 10 comps and I'm going to see who's using dynamic pricing. If I see somebody who's pricing the same today and they're pricing the exact same six months from today, they're not they're not a professional operator. They're not using good dynamic pricing. They're not a good comp. But if I see someone who's charging today 120 because they're vacant, because it just happens to be a flat day, but again, I check their occupancy for the next 30 days and they're booked for the next five weeks, but today happens to be vacant, then I'm going to check that listing three months out and see what they're charging, right? And I'm going to put all that data together. And I'm just going to average it out. And I'm going to go, okay, well, this looks like a really good amount of money that I can make here. And these, these units are very, very, very booked in the next 30 days. This is probably a good place to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Very simple, very easy comps. So as you know, right, Airbnb or short-term rentals right now, you are talking about $200 a night for a two-bedroom apartment. That's like six grand a month if it's fully occupied. That same apartment while rented out full-time will probably go for like two grand, maybe, right? That's a $4,000 discrepancy. You're paying three times as much to live in a fully furnished short-term rental versus just, you know, living there. First of all, like how are people able to afford this kind of rent? And second of all, do you worry that at a certain point, that difference, six grand and two grand will get closer, right? Like you won't have this, this crazy large spread that you're getting on short-term rentals right now. Yeah, dude, Sean, great question, man. So here's the thing. There's a customer for everything, right? The reason people are willing to pay a big spread is because they're in the process of something. If you're looking for a place to stay long-term, it doesn't make sense for you to pay $6,000 a month. You get a vacant house, you spend the money to furnish, you set it up yourself, you live comfortably the way you want to live. But if you're traveling through on business and you need someone to just stay for 30 days and you want to be somewhere comfortable, fully set up, not having to worry about setting up utilities, um, not worrying about having to pay for the internet, none of that, then odds are you're going to want to pay a little bit more money, right? Here's, here's the thing. Even if you want to live in a fully furnished location and pay a premium, you're paying premium for the service you're being provided, Right. If I were to move to a city, let's say if I want to go to New York for six months, I'm not going to go and sign a six-month lease, right? Pay $10,000 on furniture to put it inside the apartment to live for six months, right? Then have to pay $1,000 a month on utilities, amenities, and all that other stuff. You're looking at, let's just say, $11,000 and then six months worth of rent, which would be, in this example, something like $3,000, right? Um, you're looking at 18000 You're looking at $28,000 to be at a place for six months and then in six months, figure out what to do with all your furniture, figure out what to do with all your stuff. Or would you rather go and find a place that you can find fully furnished for six months at about five grand a month and not have to worry about it at the end of your six months, right? 
it's it's the, the the quality of place you want to stay, the service you want, whatever fits your lifestyle, right? Um, that hopefully that answers that first part. It, people pay a premium because they need to be specific places. Maybe you can't sign a one year lease for whatever reason because you're working on purchasing a home. Therefore, you go and you find something furnished because you still have your kids and your wife and your dog, and you need to live somewhere that's already ready to go while you transition. You're going to pay a premium for that. Um, that's the service that you're going to provide. To answer your second part about if I see it getting closer, I do see it getting closer. The market's becoming saturated. Um, Short-term rentals are becoming very, very popular. Um, a lot of people are like, it's one of the most popular talk, talked about things right now. Everybody wants to know about Airbnb and short-term rentals. I mean, everybody. Articles are being written left and right. Books are now popping up on how to start short-term rentals. Before there was none of this. There was a few coaches and mentors that would teach you this, or it was go out and grind and figure it out yourself. They're becoming super, super popular. With that comes more adoption, market adoption, right? So more people are going to start doing it, right? More people are going to start doing it professionally and competition is going to start rising. Therefore, prices are going to start dropping, right? Market demand. It is what it is. Yeah, it's going to happen, but that's how you stand out above the rest. You start providing a different type of service. You get creative with it, right? You start housing different customers. You start going after direct booking contracts. You start going after the people who have nightly premium, right? Contractor companies that want to pay premium to have a good place to stay while they're working. Insurance agencies, all of that. You got to get creative on how you're going to bring in that revenue that you need to bring in. Because when that that, that gap starts to close down, right? You need to be able to figure out, is this still work for me or is it time to move on? Because it's going to happen at some point. But with market adoption comes growth. It gives us the opportunity to become professional business operators. It gives us the opportunity to figure out a better a better service for our customers, um, provide better amenities, um, provide better, I don't know, whatever supplies, whatever it is that we're doing, right? To, to attract the customer to continue to pay us what we are demanding. Yeah. And you know, this is the main reason why I didn't get into it earlier because I've heard about Airbnb arbitrage since like 2016. And I always thought, well... If, if it's so easy and everyone can do it, then shouldn't these numbers like drop, right? Uh, and of course, like, since that time, five years later, it's only grown. No, listen, it's still, even now talking about this, it's still in the early stages, like super, super early stages. Um, some markets might be saturated, for sure they're already out there, but just move on to a different market. The world's a big place. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about like Airbnb laws, like, or I guess short-term rental laws changing? per like city or per county? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's something that I'm constantly keeping a look on. You got to make educated and well thought out decisions when you do this, right? What do I mean by that? If, if I go into a city without checking the, the law or the ordinance, so to speak, the ordinance, and it's, it's Airbnb is not allowed, and I decide to go and sign a 12-month lease in a place where it's not allowed, I set myself up for failure. I didn't make a good, educated, thought out decision, Right. I went out and I did something that I shouldn't have done. So therefore, I'm going to get shut down really fast and I'm going to lose a lot of money. So I look for locations where I'm either allowed to operate or where there's no ordinance yet. Now, you might be thinking, well, I might as well go to the place where there's no ordinance because it's easy, right? I can just go in and there's no no law that says I'm not allowed to do this. I don't have to pay taxes. I don't have to be in a specific area, right? Ordinances are placed to protect everybody's best interests, whether it's people who live long-term or people who are coming short-term. Um, some places we could argue it's just because, you know, lobbyists are trying to ban them for political reasons. Sure, there's everything. But for the most part, ordinances are placed to protect everybody. And if an ordinance tells you that you can't operate in a specific location, well, then you really need to understand the ordinance because what location can you operate in? How can I operate based on this ordinance? It could just be that you need to work in a different zone. It could just be that you need to look at a different type of property. It could just be that you need to do a different amount of night minimums. It could just mean that you just got to pay taxes to the city so that they can get their cut, right? But if you go into a place that has no ordinance, no laws, and it's kind of the wild west of short-term rentals, and you pop up shop and you're doing great, and you're making a bunch of money, and then a year later they go, hey, we're not going to allow it anymore, and they just cut you off, then what do you do, right? Now you're stuck. Okay, well, what do I do? You either got to pick up your stuff and go somewhere else, shut your business down, or uh, comply to the ordinance, right? I've done it all. I am in cities that don't allow it, but I know that if an ordinance does come out, I got to be ready for it. I now am prepared for it. I have the funds set up to if they ask me to pay taxes, I can pay the taxes. If they ask me to shut down, 
I can move my location somewhere else. Uh, worst case scenario, I can sell everything off and go and start actually investing in real estate, right? Something of that that nature. It happened in the city where I'm at now that where they, the, the city the city bandit, we got together with a bunch of operators. We fought it. Um, they compromised. They allowed 100 total in the city. And um, there was 450 operators in the city. So they're basically telling 350 people to shut, shut, shut down shop. Um, I applied for my permits. I paid my back taxes and now I'm just waiting. And I'm hoping that if they, they, I make the 100, if I don't, you know, it is what it is. I was there knowing that this was going to come. I'm surprised they don't just grandfather you in, you know, like, oh, you're already operating here. No new ones, but the ones who are already operating can just keep going. Most people usually do. Um, most cities usually do. But the problem is that, you know, again, politics get involved. People are pressured here and there. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of moving pieces. Um, they, I could argue that, you know, just if you're already there, let them operate. Yeah. But other people are scared. They'll tell you, no. I don't think the 100 cap was makes sense. That I think they're going to get fought for it in the future. You know, it, it. listen, it happened in Anaheim, right? Council members were actually changed for this. Like, they were moved. And so it's a big, big thing. Gotcha. So I know we're running out on time. Uh, I had another question for you. Besides like Airbnb, VRBO, what other like marketing platforms or websites do you use to market your properties? And I mean, in my case, we're doing 30 day plus rentals uh, because the city I'm in has an ordinance. So I was wondering uh, from your experience, what are some good websites that we should be looking into to market our property on? You know, I currently am only on Airbnb and VRBO um, and my own direct website. Um, there's furnished finder where you can go out and find, um, travel nurses, obviously booking.com is a big one, but, um, look, there's a lot of them. There's like some targeted just for LGBTQ communities. There's start some targeted for people who just come strictly from the UK. Um, and they, but here's the point I'm trying to get. It doesn't matter where you go on. You can do 30 day minimums if you target the right type of customer, right? Um, for example, you're targeting the interns. Um, I don't think there's a website for interns, right? There's no no specific website. They just found us on Airbnb. Correct. And and that's because it's just set up that way. Um, Airbnb will target, you can target a specific customer through Airbnb. You can target a specific customer through a VRBO at a specific nightly minimum. It's just the 30-day minimum model just means you have to go out and do a little bit more work yourself. Um, I get I get a lot of direct bookings that are 30-day minimums, but they come through my own direct website from contacts I've built over the past, right? Um, I have four of my units right now that are all 40 day minimums right now. And they came from direct contacts that I did a direct booking with in the past, right? An insurance agency, um, contractor, uh, a contracting company, and actually two contracting companies and a nurse, right? Those four units are being filled with that right now. Um, nurses tend to stay long-term, uh, contracting companies always stay long-term because they're here on a work assignment. Business travelers love to stay long-term if they're here for a work assignment, People who are out doing surgeries here obviously got to stay long, uh, stay long term. Interns, they're basically college housing, right? Um, colleges, people need to stay long term. You can get college people. I get co- I've gotten college students from Fullerton stay with me, and they've rented my places for four months up front, right? Paid cash up front. Um, the point I'm making here is that there's no specific websites for 30 day minimums. You just have to target those customers correctly, and um, it just requires more work. Right. There's a website called ALE Solutions. Get on. Oh, I think I told you about that one. Mm-hmm. You, you got to get on that one. They'll contact you at some point. Right. It might take a little bit of time, but they'll contact you. I get contacted from them quite often and they book my places. Um, there's multiple insurance agencies out there that love renting places like this because they want to house people for more more time. I, sorry, I can give you a clear answer. I mean, it, it's just I don't focus on that. I like specific niche people and they usually book with me for 30 day minimums through Airbnb. Just be smart and capture the data. So that when they come back, you can do a direct booking and not have to pay your fees to all these other platforms. Got it. So like, I guess in this case, maybe after the end of our session with these interns, I'll be like, hey, if you guys enjoyed it, let me know who your direct contact is. And maybe I'll work with the more Tesla interns in the future, right? Dude, absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. Um, you can get the, if you can get the contract for those, they'll, they'll always just come to you. And yeah. You never have to worry about any platform. They'll always book your place. Right. Awesome. Well, Rafa, thank you so much for coming on the show to you know, talk to us about Airbnb arbitrage, or I guess short-term rental arbitrage, and how you can get started with you know very little money and just making sure that you manage it correctly. How can people find out more about you and get in contact with you? Instagram is the easiest way. Um, it's Rafa underscore Loza. It's R-A-F-A underscore L-Zero, 
Z-A, not the O, the zero. Um, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Shoot me a message. I It takes me a while to respond, but I always respond to everybody. And then, you know, my own direct book website, if anybody wants to come stay at one of my places, it's nightinrain.com, K-N-I-G-H-T-A-N-D-R-E-I-G-N. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, and then also um, on Facebook, I have a group. Uh, it's called Airbnb, The Big Break, where we talk about all things short-term rental. Um, it's grown quite rapidly where we're answering questions, helping people. I drop videos. Um, and then soon to come, I'll have my own podcast and my own YouTube channel. So just stay tuned for that as well. Very cool. Well, Rafa, thank you again so much for being on the show today. Um, it was amazing. I learned so much. And we're going to be taking this information. And when we move to Texas in a few months, we're actually going to be scaling up uh, you know, kind of an Airbnb division as well. Because we do long terms already. Like my fiance and I have like 24 rental properties. Now we want to kind of break into that short-term rental space as well. So a lot of information here. Hope all the listeners here got a lot of information too. If you did, definitely reach out to Rafa at his Instagram account and give him a thumbs up or like a thank you for his uh, awesome knowledge bombs today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.